Right, Luke 14, beginning at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, if you would turn back to verse one of this chapter, you'll notice that this takes place in the house of a Pharisee. They had likely been at uh, the synagogue on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, and Jesus was invited over by this Pharisee uh, to the Pharisee's house. And we are told in verse one of this chapter, actually for a little bit of background and context, that they were watching him carefully. Now that's, that's a huge key to what's going on here. They didn't just invite Jesus over to hang out and, and discover a few things about him. They were watching him. They wanted to see what he would do. And we're told that there was a man there with dropsy. Now dropsy is a condition in which water accumulates in your body largely due to either kidney or heart or liver problems. So it wasn't a pretty disease. So this man either had water pooling down by his feet or his stomach was distended, whatever the case may have been. But a man with dropsy was not someone a Pharisee would normally want to hang out with and befriend and spend a lot of time with. So they have their eyes on Jesus. They know he heals on the Sabbath. They make this perfect setup. We'll get this man with dropsy over here and they're watching Jesus closely. And in verse three, we're told, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now that's interesting because they hadn't said a word to Jesus yet, as far as we're told. What was he responding to? He was responding to the setup. He knew what they were doing. He knew that they had brought this man with dropsy there. He knew that they were testing him likely. This, this was sort of a trap. And so in response to that, we're told, that Jesus responded to them. They hadn't said a word, but he knows exactly what they're doing. And he asked them, yeah, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They just sat there with teeth in their mouth and skin on their nose, didn't say a word. They had nothing they could say to him. But then Jesus makes a very powerful point to them and said in verse five, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Now pulling a son out is simple, pulling an ox out makes a really powerful point. Here's a man with dropsy. He's way more important than an ox. He's an image bearer of God. How could I not heal him? And so the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is exposed. They still don't talk to Jesus. Jesus heals the man and sends him out 
and they remained silent. At the moment, they should have dropped to their knees in repentance of their hypocrisy and of their selfishness, of their legalism, but they couldn't. They just sat there. And then there is a turn of events when we come to verse 7, which is where we started reading today. Verse 1 says that the lawyers and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. But verse 7 tells us that while the lawyers and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, Jesus was making his own observations and noticing things very closely as well. He was keeping an eye on where people were sitting. Now, just a bit of information here regarding a wedding feast. Now, if you're at a, a feast or a, a wedding feast, which is uh, what the parable is envisioning here, then there would have been couches that were uh, uh, placed in the room in the shape of a U. So think like this, the most important couch is here at the bottom of the U, and the least place that you'd wanna be is right up here by the tips of your fingers. You're farthest away from the host. The host would sit here. And the middle couch was the most important couch. The couch just to the left of the host was the second most important couch, and then the third most important couch, and fourth and fifth, all the way down the line. And the number one seat at that banquet would have been on the middle couch, right in the middle seat. Most of these couches sat three people. The second most important place would have been just to the left of the host, and the third most important place would have been on the, the host's couch just to the right of the host. I hope you caught that. So what all Jews understood is that there's a pecking order in seating. When you come to a wedding feast like this, everybody wants to sit closest to the host and be honored, not just by the host, but all the other guests would honor you and say, wow, they must be really important. They must really know the host well. Now, Jesus is watching the guests find their places, and this must have been an interesting movie to watch. Proud guest number one meanders over to the place just to the left of the host, just thinking out loud here. And he's not going to go sit down right now, but he's going to guard that place really carefully. Proud guest number two thinks, I'm going to go over there as well. And I'm going to see if I can finagle my way into sitting at the top spot right next to the host. Then you've got proud guest number three, who knows, I'm not as honorable as proud guest number one and two, but I'm sure, certainly not going to sit down there with a riprap. So I'm going to move over to like number two or number three couch and find a place there. And we've got proud guests all the way down to 20, maybe 30 people that are busy talking and conversing. And then all of a sudden it happens. Proud guest number two gets a real boost from his ego. And all of a sudden he thinks, you know what? I'm more important than this other guy. I'm going to go for it. He sits down in the best place. Proud guest number one, not wanting to miss out, realizes I can't get to that spot anymore. I'm going to go sit to the right of the host. And then there's this nonchalant, holy scurry where people are trying to sit down and figure it out. Maybe they're diving over the couches. Who knows what this looked like? Probably not diving. <laughs> they were more dignified than that. But people were trying to figure out, hey, I've got to sit as high up as I can. And over in the corner were some ladies who were busy chatting. They didn't even keep track of it. And they ended up in the very last spot. So maybe it was a couple guys that were doing it, whatever the case. Jesus watched this unfold. He noticed where people were sitting. And then he had something to say about it. Now, what is going on in their sitting down in these seats? R.C. Sproul explained it this way. This clamoring for the best seat is about something basic to our humanity, an ungodly ambition and quest for recognition and honor and glory. 
in this world. And when Jesus watched guests try and sit down, he said this. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, all the Jews would have been familiar with this teaching because it's largely the same language or the same teaching in Proverbs 25, verses 6 to 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. But no one at this Pharisee's house on this Saturday afternoon dinner had that passage in mind, or at least no one was bent on obeying it. Now, what's going on? Why was this so characteristic of life in a Pharisee's home? Why were the Jews scrambling to find the best seat? Simon Kistemacher said this, Pharisees and experts on the law had created a climate of haughtiness and arrogance, devoid of love and humility. And in that climate, it's really easy to understand why if you weren't a Pharisee or a teacher of the law and you were someone who kind of wanted to rise up the ranks or at least be counted as somebody in the kingdom of God, you might think, I'll never be a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, but the best thing I can do is try and sit next to them or at least get close to them and be considered a really, really holy person. Now, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen in any one of our churches. The same thing can happen in our view of the kingdom of God. Or we believe that we exist as believers on this earth to do what? Siphon and suck as much praise and honor and glory as we can out of the mouths of everyone around us. And not be looking to heaven where God humbles those who have exalted themselves. And he exalts those who, or and he humbles those who have exalted themselves and vice versa. Now here in America, if we listen to the social experts, we're told that each of us lacks, including our children, self-esteem. Now self-esteem is to think very highly, esteem is to think very highly of someone or something. So self-esteem is to think very highly of one self. And so if we're to swallow hook, line, and sinker this teaching on self-esteem, we're to think, every one of us, hey, I should sit next to the host. I'm the most important. I'm worthy of this. I'm the most valuable person in the room, etc. That's what we are taught to think by many people. And I love what John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Religion said, there is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly than to be flattered. Nothing pleases man more than the sort of alluring talk that tickles the pride that itches and he's very marrow. Therefore, in nearly every age, when anyone publicly extolled human nature in most favorable terms, he was listened to with applause. And inside each of us as born-again Christians, beloved, is this desire to be praised and noticed and honored and even worshiped, to be esteemed by ourselves and by other people. We want our due. We want respect, right? We feel slighted when others give more respect to people that we think are beneath us. 
So what Jesus teaches here is so contrary to our nature. What Jesus teaches here can only be obeyed and thought about by those who are born-again Christians, those who have a brand new heart, who have the Holy Spirit working in them, who have the mind of Christ, who are saved by the Lord. Spurgeon, in giving us sort of direction, says this, let us not covet the highest place. Let us not desire honor among men. In the church of God, the way upward is downward. He that will do the lowest work shall have the highest honor. Our master washed his disciples' feet, and we are never more honored than when we are permitted to imitate his example. Now, if you go back to this parable about the wedding feast that Jesus tells in the living room of this Pharisee on that Saturday afternoon after synagogue, there's something really important that Jesus points out about seating arrangement, and that is the place of the host in the seating arrangement. In the parable, who begins deciding where everyone should sit? At the beginning of the parable, the guests were the one who decided where they sit, right? And Jesus was watching them decide where they sat. But in reality, who is the one who decides where each guest sits after they've taken their seats? It's the host, right? The host is the one who says to the person who sat up too high, I'm afraid you're going to have to move down a few notches. I've got someone who's going to get more honor than you. And then they have to move. And the host is the one who decides, hey, you wait at the end. Why don't you come sit on the couch with me? I'd love to have you in my presence. I want you right up here. So the guests thought, this is on me to decide. And what Jesus teaches is that in the kingdom of God, in this parable, it's the Lord. He's the host. He's, he's the one who is in charge of the wedding supper of the Lamb, the Crete wedding feast. He's the one who decides who gets honor and who doesn't. And what do you suppose the believer who sits on the lowest seat in the banquet is thinking? What do you suppose the believer who's sitting in the lowest seat at the wedding supper of the Lamb is going to think? Well, the proud people will probably think they're thinking, oh, this guy just wants to be elevated. He wants to be put. Everybody's now going to chase after the lower seat so they can be brought up high. But the one who picks the lowest seat in the kingdom of heaven will be thinking this, I can't believe I got to sit in the lowest seat. I just made it in. I can't believe I was on the invite list. What am I even doing in this feast? This is incredible. I get to be at the wedding supper of the lamb. They invited me. That's what the person who's sitting in the lowest seat is thinking or ought to be thinking. And that ought to be just thinking for each of us. I don't deserve to be here at all. The fact that I'm here at all is something which I am continually overwhelmed by. Why would the Lord invite me and choose me for eternal life? And as for us, we should all be enamored that we are even in the banquet at all. As to where our place in heaven is, we should be glad to leave that up to the Lord. He's the one on the last day who's gonna decide, Hey. You're going to be exalted. You served me in humble ways so faithfully. I'm exalting you. And he's going to humble those who exalted themselves in this world. I noticed in Springfield, Missouri, when I was pastoring there, that pastors and teachers and those who held official titles in the church were actually uh, looked up to, almost worshipped, put on pedestals by everyone else. People thought that if you're a pastor or a Bible teacher, etc., 
or a leader of the church in some way that you were just more important in the kingdom of God. And that that was the really great work that everyone should be striving to do. And it was during my time there that I just happened to listen to, I mean, the Lord did this in his providence, but for me, it was just happenstance, a sermon by Alistair Begg in which he said, you know, there's a lot of pastors in this world. There's a lot of us as pastors. I think it was actually at a conference he was speaking to other pastors who are exalted now. We get the pats on the back. We get the thanks for the work. We get the praise or the glory, whatever the case may be in this world from other people for the work that we're doing for the kingdom of God. And we're going to be humbled on the last day. And we're going to discover that actually the woman who was faithfully serving, raising her children, and then became a widow and served in whatever way she could, gave sacrificially like the widow in the temple courts and did nothing but pray, nothing visibly, serving where she could, but just pray diligently. She lived a humble service to the Lord and she will be exalted. He said, don't be surprised if that takes place on the last day. Great food for thought, incredible food for thought. Because what we as human beings like to exalt and praise and honor, God doesn't necessarily think the same way. But he's looking at each of our service and each of our hearts, beloved. And we should be content to serve him where we are serving him and be content with wherever he places us at the wedding feast. You know, Jesus, when he came to this earth, took up the lowest place. He was born in Bethlehem, laid in a feeding trough. There was no room for the Lord of glory in the inn. Lived 30 years in a no-name town with his parents, doing carpentry work with his dad, likely. He taught and healed the least of people during his ministry, receiving no compensation for it, but content with the clothing on his back and food to eat. He took the lowest form ever when he became obedient to death and the death of the cross. He died on this earth, having taken the lowest form of humanity to ever exist in the entire known universe. There has no human being who has ever been lower than Jesus Christ on this earth. No human being has ever been that low. He wasn't just a lifelong servant who washed the poo off his disciples' feet. He wasn't just a teacher and miracle healer who worked for free. He wasn't just God in the flesh who endured hatred and scorn and persecution and injustice patiently. He was much lower than all those things. He became sin. He became everything ugly, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became the lowest form of humanity on earth, the preeminent foremost sinner. He became the murderer the rapist, he became the drug addict, he became the liar, he became the God-hater, he became the sexual predator and addict. Jesus Christ was imputed with every single sin, beloved, of every single believer. He was imputed with all of that. And then on the cross, he was regarded by God his Father when he was forsaken as the worst, ugliest sinner who had ever walked on the face of the earth. And he paid. Oh, he paid for it in our place. No human being has ever stooped lower. And now we belong to him. After the cross, resurrection, ascension, glory. He's seated in the heavenlies now. We're actually seated with him in the heavenlies. A beloved before resurrection day, capital R, takes place for us before judgment day comes and we're in glory. We're called to be those who take up lowly service. 
who are not proud, trying to vaunt ourselves over others. Hey, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at all the good work I'm doing for the Lord's glory and for his kingdom. We're called to be those who just faithfully serve no matter where it is the Lord's called us, maybe in small ways. We will never be asked to go as low as Jesus went, never. We could go all the way to the bottom and do the most minuscule task in the kingdom of God and Jesus has been lower still. And so we should do it with delight and with joy and receive our exaltation when we get to heaven, not try and receive it here on earth in the form of the praise of men. Well, then finally, there's the self-serving host. The second thing I want us to notice in verses 12 through 14. So Jesus, <laughs> you can imagine if you were a guest and you heard Jesus teach on this, but like, <laughs> who invited this guy? This is some pretty hard teaching. I just sat down and then he's got to go into this parable. And then now if you look at the host, something interesting happens too. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. And you can imagine the tension. There's already tension in this room. <laughs> Lots of it. Every guest sitting on a couch. <laughs> it's like, wow, you could cut this with a knife. But now Jesus ups the tension even more. Now he criticizes the host, the very person who invited him. And he looks at, at the host as it were and says, not only did these people sit in the wrong spot, you invited the wrong people. Whoa. So lots of tension here in this room. And one of the greatest spiritual dangers in Jesus' day among the Pharisees and the scribes, and even down to our day in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ all over the world, is that we start to live exclusively in our little holy bubbles and comfortable circles. And Jesus is exposing that in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And he's exposing it in us as well. It's really tempting, beloved, in a town where plenty of us have lots of family, lots of good Christian friends, which is such a blessing. There is, that is an incredible blessing. It's very possible that those are the only people that we hang around with ever. That we invite those who we know will invite us back. That we invite those and honor those whom we know will invite us and honor us and give us good seats at their house, at their parties, at their wedding feasts. It's very possible that that is the sum of our lives. And what Jesus points out here is we'll be missing out on something. Did you notice that way at the end? You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What is Jesus concerned with? He's concerned with us having reward in heaven. He's concerned with us storing up treasure in heaven, not going after the praise of men on this earth. And what's he saying is one way we can store up treasure in heaven. Indeed, hang out with your brothers, your family members. He assumes you're going to do that. Of course, they're going to continue to do that. All believers in Jesus' day, all the Christians there, they're getting together with each other, with brothers and sisters in the Lord and with their biological family. They're already doing that. Jesus is just saying, consider something else. Invite those who can't repay you. Your brother, he'll have you over someday. Your sister, they'll have you over again, right? It'll be mutual, likely. I want you to store a treasure in heaven by inviting those people who can't repay you who don't have the means to, don't have the ability to, the poor couldn't afford to have you over, the maim, 
They, they don't have the physical ability to, to be a host. The blind, they can't either. The crippled, I want you to reach out to them. Invite them to your house. Invite them into your life. Spend some time with them. Why? So they can't repay you and you can be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Are we living in such a way that repayment, to use Jesus' language, at Resurrection Day is what is always on our minds and our hearts? Are we living in such a way as to store up treasure in heaven? Not thinking, oh, I, I just want all of my hospitality and all of my meals to be with those who make me feel good or with whom I'm very familiar, but also to have in my world of hospitality my world of caring for people, those who can't benefit me in any way, and to just love them. Now, why is this so important? Why does Jesus kind of drive this point home <laughs> in a way, again, that would have created so much tension? It's a powerful point. <laughs> He's making it in front of a lot of people. And I'm guessing that maybe after he finished this parable, a lot of the guests, even the host thought, I'm just going to go outside and see if somebody else has got dinner because <laughs> I just want to get away from him. Why is this so important? Because that's how he's loved us. Because we were the crippled, the poor in spirit, the lame, can't benefit him in any way. And he came down into this world, beloved, to come and minister to and invite to his wedding feast those who contributed nothing to the feast. Let me, let me take that back. We contributed something to the feast. We brought rotten apples and a whole host of horrible food called sin that just has to be discarded and put on him so he can pay for it. That's how Jesus ministered to us. We're the ones who bring nothing to the table. In fact, the only thing we do, even as born-again Christians, the only good works we perform is what is just due to the grace of God working in us. Now we're working out our salvation. We have a responsibility, right? But even Paul said, I worked harder than the, other, than the other apostles, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working in me. So everything we do to God's honor and glory is just first coming from him. This is amazing. Who can love people? Who can pull this off? loving millions of people who can't repay him back, but who are just faithfully trying to obey him and serve him. Only our God can pull this off, beloved. And he's done that for you and me. And so our God cares that as believers, as people who belong to him, when we go out into the world, he cares who we spend our time with. Again, spend time with our friends and family. Spend time with our brothers and sisters in the faith, encouraging one another and helping one another. Absolutely. Also spend time with those believers or those unbelievers who can't benefit us so that we can be more like our Lord Jesus Christ in his love for us. Let's pray.